listening to Birthplace of Next, the podcast where city officials and partners discuss the latest news and developments in Dayton that make it a livable, sustainable, and innovative community. In this Birthplace of Next special edition, we're featuring Dayton Mayor Jeffrey Mims, who will be talking with Felicia Carlton, co-owner and founder of Charlton Charlton & Associates, a professional resilience and emotional wellness firm. Okay, so uh, today we have a, another one of my special guests, of course all my guests are special, uh, Ms. Felipia Charlton, okay? Uh, where do you get such a beautiful name? Thank you, Mayor, for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, my first name came from my dad's name. His name is Philip. Okay. And so my mom got really unique and spelled it P-H-I-L-L-I-T-I-A, and then she added some very unique pronunciation. So people think that it has an H at the end. Okay. But um, that's where she, she, I was a girl. They wanted a boy. <laughs> and so she found a way to incorporate uh, his name into mine. And so I end up having to explain it. But when I go overseas or meet somebody who speaks Portuguese or Spanish, they, they say it correctly all the time. So maybe I'm not really okay. from here. Okay. <laughs> I know. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Yo, so your organization, uh, Charlton and Charlton, Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that for a second. What is, what is that? Well, it is an emotional wellness firm, and we help people identify, manage, or eliminate personal issues that are impacting their professional success. So we started in 2017. Um, our story is we both kind of got fired at the same oh, time. Can't believe that. Yeah, it happened. <laughs> oh, it went down. So, yeah, it was just a time where we were pivoting in our careers and really chasing success, and there was meaning there, but more looking for the bottom line and the dollar than the success. And so kind of had some clashes some value clashes with our jobs that we were both working with, a lot of heavy transition, and we were like, well, what would we need? What what did we need in order to be coached through these situations versus terminated um, in these situations? And so we were thinking about care, consideration, time, conversation. At the time, uh, my husband and I were taking care of my sister's seven kids. My mom was in a nursing home, and so that might impact your ability to be a thousand percent all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if we would have had some conversations about not being bottom line, everything being bottom line, then we could have kind of worked through that. And so we said, how can we help other people who might be going through this really challenge employers and challenge themselves to look at who they are personally, not just professionally, not put all the onus on the employer, but do I want to be here? Am I performing at 100 percent? And do I have the capacity to do what I'm being asked to do, looking at both sides of that. And so the emotional wellness came up because there's care and consideration for people that was really missing and everything was about data and bottom lines. And so at first, nobody knew what we did in 2017. Like, what is an emotional wellness firm? And so we talked about personal and professional development. We were told to pick one. And then when COVID hit, um, that's when our business really started taking off because people were like, oh my goodness, we need to start caring about people (laughs) and the emotional wellness. And so it was kind of a... um, something that was really traumatic that turned out to, we found out how to create some sort of a segue or blessing in that work to really help people humanize emotional wellness in the workplace. Okay, all right. You know, I first um, I became aware of you when you were in the educational system. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, you started working over at uh, Dayton Digital mm-hmm. and uh, hired you as uh, principal. Mm-hmm. Uh, good times in terms of that. So let's go back a little bit before that, before you talk about that and your experience in that space. But um, talk about where you came from. How did you get to Dayton and uh, what led you to be in a position to move into that job at that particular point in time? Yeah, I am actually from Dayton. So yeah. born and raised in Dayton. Um, 
Ended up spending a little bit of time in Detroit. Grew up in the foster care system here um, in Dayton. Mm -hmm. Ended up living with my great aunt who was a teacher. And I said I never wanted to be in education, and I never was going to be a teacher. <laughs> and I ended up doing those things. I, I went to, graduated from Meadowdale High School, um, really enjoyed that experience, got most school spirited, was on honor roll, and then ended up going to Alabama State, which brought me back home uh, to Dayton afterwards to be a caregiver to my great aunt, because I was the only person that she had left that could take care of her. Um, and she was, it was just myself and my daughter at the time before I got married. And then I needed a job, and I was a PR major, but okay. it was very difficult uh, to navigate public relations not being in the area during that time and also having a small child. So I ended up working in the educational system as a computer technician. I had yeah. no idea what I was doing. Absolutely. <laughs> I had the manual spread out, and I did not know what was happening. But, you know, you need a job. You do the best you can to make it work. Right. And I, as I was in that office, I started really just coming out, doing extra things with the students. Um, they started trusting me, talking to me. I created different programs for them to be a part of. I started um, hanging out, doing programming after school. And I'm like, oh, I think I kind of like this. I want to do administration because I think I should be in charge of everything. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> so then I um, started to look at how do I – how do I transition my career? Because at that time I had my bachelor's in public relations. I had a master's in project management. And I'm like, I got to go to school again. So I ended up going to Wright State and getting my um, career tech in business, which to me was hilarious because I'm like, I don't have a business, but I have an acumen for business. Mm -hmm. And so kind of segued there um, and began to teach. I taught at Miami Jacobs for a little while, and then I uh, wanted to move out of proprietary. And then that's how I ended up knowing David White. Uh, some people knew right. him, and they called me, and they were like, do you want to teach? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't. But then I was like, you don't have a job. So I ended up okay. going to Dayton Tech, and I absolutely loved it because I got to use all of my community experience. I did a lot of work with the Dayton Urban League at the time. I was the vice president of the Young Professionals and then became the president. So I was able to merge some of that community experience with the classroom experience in business, create incubators, have the community come in, have the students go out and volunteer. And then when he had an opportunity to move up, um, I was asked to be the principal and I was shocked. Uh, um, but then... No, we, we, we looked at that, okay? We yeah. looked at some things that were going on. You know, because uh, David had done a great job uh, there in that space. Uh, in fact, we started that program with, uh, with him. And the, the aspect of when we moved him to uh, Belmont High mm -hmm. School, you know, then uh, your name jumped up about 25 times in terms of a person that we thought should be uh, in that space. So, no, you, you uh, certainly uh, lived up to all the hype. You know, so thank you so much for that. I, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. I, I love what I do, so I didn't know who was watching. I think that was the great part about being right. young, giving me a chance at 30 to be a principal um, who didn't have that experience but trusted me with it. Ended up going to University of Dayton to complete my principal's licensure, so I just kept going and to make sure I was credentialed. And the board was amazing in terms of support. They really wrapped their arms around me, but they let me do what they thought. Uh, they let me be extremely creative within boundaries, and so we were able to become the first uh, school in the country to be an alternative national urban school of excellence um, because I had the support of the community and because of the board and parents. Right. Yeah, very much so. You know, I'm looking at uh, some of your background, some of your data. One of the statements that you made uh, indicated about 2% of those young people who are involved in foster, um, uh, foster homes uh, wind up getting a degree in college. Uh, talk about that, that thought process for a second. Yeah. 
One of the blessings I had, even though I had an extremely tumultuous uh, childhood, very abusive physically and emotionally, I was with an educator. And so she taught me the importance of education as a way out. Like, you might not have anything else, don't give up your education. She taught me about, I was reading before the Mayflower at 12. I was introduced to Maya Angelou. I was going, I actually met Maya Angelou, um, and I was so excited about it. Okay. Um, I was always in church, in Sunday school programs. And so even though I didn't necessarily have a consistent background, I was in the community in consistent programs. I was in a program you had, um, what was it called? Generation. It was with Miss Grigsby. Yeah, uh, uh, it was the uh, New Futures. New Futures program. Right. So I was always picked for those programs. Dr. Ogletree, who was a, a renowned physician here, took us on college tours. So I was very blessed to be exposed to what I didn't have at home. Okay. And so I think that that changes when you think about two percent of people graduated from college. I know that my experience was extremely unique and I was very fortunate because I was exposed to many different things and a lot of that was writing speeches, being on stage, I always liked to speak and talk and people saw, took an interest in me and allowed me to have those opportunities so I think it really helped me to continue to seek education. You know, you seem like you are clearly a perfect fit for that program because the whole program concept with the Annie Casey Foundation and that $20 million grant that we got from them was to sort of bridge uh, young people, especially those young people in middle school, mm -hmm. as preparing them for uh, the last chance, they thought, to move successfully into adulthood from youthhood. And the, the aspect of working initially with those three elementary, uh, three, oh, excuse me, three middle schools, Roth, Wilbright, and Kaiser, in terms of those programs, to uh, give kids a whole bunch of extra opportunities to train staff, um, it's one of the best programs I think that I've ever worked with yeah, in terms of having, uh, I, I personally had a $1.2 million budget and I put my school, um, well, actually my office in the worst school, which was Will Wright at the time. Mm -hmm. And so giving staff all the opportunities that they have for field trips, you know, lock-ins with kids and when you spend the night with the kids at the school and, you know, sometimes parents come and they spend the night with them as well. And you just keep one activity after the other after the other, and then have the nerve to go to school the next day. <laughs> you know, stay there. You know. mm -hmm. So it's just a tremendous amount of fun from that perspective. But when we looked at the data that showed how the attitudes of young people changed significantly from the first year, we wound up doing that thing for six years. From the first year they started doing that program, over the years the attitudes changed about young people having more and more self-value. Mm -hmm. if you will. More and more of them felt like they were going to graduate from high school. More and more of them felt like they were going to be able to uh, get married and have a family. You know, more and more of them felt like they were even going to have a job. Mm -hmm. As opposed to many of them early uh, who had the thought that they had no value, that they didn't see themselves living past being 12 or 13 or 16 years old. You know, and that's, that's really scary. Mm -hmm. That's really scary. Yeah. So I guess so the aspect of looking at seeing why, and I didn't know you were in that program as well, so mm -hmm. the aspect of seeing that your pathway has put you in a position where uh, those skills, the knowledge that you've learned and gained in those processes put you in a very good position right now to do some of the work that you're doing now mm -hmm. in the community as a whole. So, um, so where do we go from here? What, what are your additional thoughts? What kind of things you want to have... Um, 
uh, in your uh, resume, if you will? Well, create. I'm a creative by nature and by heart, and so I've always loved poetry, writing, singing, speaking. And so I did a stage play um, called The Death of a Lie Stage Play. I did it in 2017 and 2018, and it was at the Dayton Art Institute. I was able to partner with CareSource and other organizations in the community to provide over 250 tickets to youth in foster care to see my story mm -hmm. and to know that I come from the same neighborhood that they do and to do emotional wellness in a creative way. It went really, really well. And then yeah. COVID hit like everybody else and I kind of backed off of that. And so I want to do an unscripted bio about my journey, um, similar to some of the questions you've asked me, mm -hmm. so it, we can create a film to build momentum back for the play so I can continue to uplift youth on a, lar on a larger scale. And then also um, I have an emotional wellness academy that's launching, coaching academy that's launching in December so I can help other people change their lives and do coaching, but actually get credentialed and certified for it. Because you have a lot of people who do this work, but you have to, it's a process and there's a way to be able to change the trajectory of your life by doing this career and starting at $50 an hour and of course on. And I want to help other people um, do that and be intentional about helping women of color who kind of are similar to me that didn't have that leg up, didn't have that parent to call, always kind of dependent on yourself, to be able to have a second chance at a career that could help them not just have a life, but a quality of life as well. Mm -hmm. Great, great. You know, when, when you start thinking about the, the whole educational arena, and um, <clears throat> I'm looking at the, the Youth Summit that I'm having tomorrow, mm -hmm. and glad you're a part of that panel to uh, work with some young people, and of course I'll let you talk about that in a few moments. But the the challenge that I seem to have, um, as I've experienced over the decades, is the aspect of so many people redefining education to be test scores mm -hmm. and not looking at the the long-term benefit of the and the purpose of the educational process. And I know that one of the reasons why we start the Dayton Digital Program was to look at some young people who had all kind of brilliant thoughts, ideas, uh, talent, but they were not a part of the main mainstream of thought, if mm -hmm. you will, when it came to test scores, when it came to just coming to school every day on time, leaving at a certain time as far as education is concerned. The, the aspect of your working in that space, how do you think that contributed to some of the thoughts that you have right now and looking at different ways to approach the needs of people? Well, that job changed my life. Um, it was one of the best jobs I've ever had because of the autonomy I had to create. I was able to, um, it came, it started as Dayton Digital, and then we were able to pivot to Dayton Business, which was really just giving me space to have a voice as a leader, right. um, and also to work with students who were just like me. So they really couldn't use any excuse because <laughs> I've been there and done there, a lot all of, all of it, and lived <laughs> through it, and wrote, literally wrote a book about it. So um, I think that that was such a beautiful space to see the hope in them and to create a sense of community and family. It, it just really helped me before I knew what life coaching was I knew how important it you were was. doing it I, you're right I was doing it I didn't even know and it was just it was amazing to humanize them through their experiences mm -hmm. and to be able to see them grow and flourish when they really thought it was completely over so mm -hmm. that work helped and then working with the staff the staff was absolutely uh, phenomenal working with people who really wanted to be there who came to work we had so much fun and the students saw that but we also had the autonomy to create a safe environment first so some of those, we were talking about fostering resilience at that time. We were talking, we did service at that time. We used to take the students to the nursing homes and they sang carols and took the cookies and snacks. It just gave them a sense of pride and value. We allowed them to paint the school 
And so a lot of times yeah. people don't have autonomy to do those sorts of things. We were able to link up with the uh, engineers club and have them meet future engineers. We had them at Wright Pat. So all the things that I learned through New Futures, through Wesley Community Center, through uh, Dr. Walker, through my mentorships, through uh, Miss Grigsby, I was able to do all of those things on a larger scale. And so I thought like, if I can do this, I literally feel like anybody can, but I also was able to see the data. Like you said, 70% of our students were going to college. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be, they were, we were supposed to be keeping them out of prison, right? not helping them go to college. And so when I sat down and, and we had a conversation about, let's change the focus of this. Let's, let's make the bar a little bit higher. Um, it really helped me understand if you care about somebody, they literally would do their best to help meet the expectation at first for you, and then they'll realize the benefit for themselves. And so that's where they really, before I even knew this life coaching thing was my thing, that's where the emotional wellness came in, just the excitement of somebody believing in themselves who didn't even know that they were worthy and had a chance. Right. Yeah, I know when we chose uh, David White to be the initial principal in the program over there, you know, he was sort of an out-of-the-box type of character. And yes. I, I can use character and, and give it all kind of um, uh, attitudes, if you will. But the aspect of looking and just that whole process of doing some of the kind of things that happen in that space, mm -hmm. you know, having him with the kind of freedom that, that he needed to move uh, in that direction. And then, of course, later on, as he went on to Belmont High School, which had been a, a problematic area as well, and then giving him the same type of freedom to, to function there. And I know it's, uh, as board president at the time, I was sort of criticized by moving him in that space, moving, I think, David Lawrence to another space. But these guys went into those spaces and turned them around. They did. Like overnight. They did. Yeah, like overnight yeah, in terms of those things. But again, very positive in terms of the work that's happening in that space. So your, um, your goals, you talked about some of the things that you would like to leave as a legacy. Um, uh, and, I, and I talk about this a lot, too, in terms of giving young people set of, um, I call them keys. Mm -hmm. I say every God-given talent that you have, you have the right and responsibility to manufacture those talents to the best of your ability. And for every talent you have, it's a key. And every key that you have opens up a door of opportunity. You know, talk about that thought process for a bit. I think, um when you talk about moving and transitioning from foster care and dealing with kind of underserved youth and the youth, the, the issues that the youth are facing now, it's getting them uh, to even to be hopeful so we can get to the keys. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that a lot of the work is building them up, but also holding them accountable, which now is a very, very delicate balance and showing them what they have inside of them is enough. And so they can be hopeful and still believe and get to those steps that you have. I think we've, um, because of COVID, we've taken a step back in terms of how we are able to communicate with one another, how we're able to talk to one another, what's tough versus what's, mo what's motivating. Mm -hmm. And so some of the, the things you're talking about are still extremely valid, but getting the youth to believe that they are worthy of it, have the discipline to be able to do it and understand that making a mistake doesn't make you a mistake. And so when you introduce these ideas that you know are proven and they work, right. even in the toughest of times, getting them to understand they can work for you too. So I think that's the work that has kind of shifted in. The answers are already here. They've been here, but the students believing that they can do them, having the motivation to do them outside of how they feel. 
And so I think that's a lot of the work is here's the plan, here's the plot. What do you want and do you believe you're capable of it? And now if you believe you're capable, what are you willing to do? And who, what resources do you have? And can you use those resources to access those keys? Because the keys are not being hidden from you. They're, right. they're not away from you. No one is looking at you as though you don't deserve them. And if you're looking at yourself like that, do, do your work so that you can access the things that are available to you. Sounds good. Sounds good. You know, when we look at the, um, um, uh, as a mayor, uh, people are always challenging me about why I am so focused, so concerned about education. And, um, you know, I've had some debates with a lot of people because they say, well, it's just your crutch, you know, because you, know, you love education, so that's what you want to want to gravitate to all the time. But the aspect of how, as I function, function with uh, mayors across this nation and um the National League of Cities, where I'm chair, that the educational component there, the aspect of how we grow the citizens that we want, and that is primarily through your educational system. Now, I think a lot of people are missing that piece, or they have that piece sometimes confused. The original concept of education was designed to help people transition into being able to be more self-sufficient, if mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. Now, this course is moved to other kinds of things, including the, the lowest the denominator in terms of quality of life indicators, which is uh, testing. Mm -hmm. you know, but the original purpose was how do we prepare the people in our society with the set of skills that they can use to make their contribution to society as well as take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at that, much like what I said a few moments ago about how do you grow your own citizens, but I look at it in another sense, too, in terms of how we continue the movement that we've had over the last 12 years of increasing the medium income. Mm -hmm. So we moved from approximately $28,000 in um, 2018, uh, 2000, maybe uh, 16, 14, to 38000 36000 right now. Um, that to me is, is clearly an indicator that that's value. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact in terms of any community, every community that you look at that has the highest uh, medium income, they have the highest quality of life. How do we communicate that more to the masses of individuals in a way that helps them understand that school is not just for the sake of going to school, a job is not just for the sake of having a job, but the collective impact that they make in terms of any community that they're moving in, in that space. I think um, the, the youth is an excellent place to start because some of the parents just don't know. And it's not because they're, it's not because they don't want to know, it's because they're just trying to make it, right. as you stated. And so I think sometimes we have to be humble enough to know that we can learn from youth. Mm -hmm. And they can, if we get to them, they can come home and teach uh, their parents what they're learning, how they're learning it, how it could impact them, and then set out to be the, the generational people that are changing the trajectory of their family. And so I think a lot of the work that's being done now, adding the emotional wellness piece to education, humanizing it, is allowing them to have hope outside of their home. Because mm -hmm. if they're not getting the hope there and they're not getting the great examples there, then it's our job as educators to be more responsible to help them get more than the data, understanding right. that the relationship drives the data and also exposure. Um, I think that we do a lot less of field trips, a lot less of, we're so scared. 
that somebody's going to get in trouble. And and they do. I mean, mm -hmm. I've done. I'm a I was a principal, so I understand. But more, it's only two or three of 200, and right. so we've denied 198 kids uh, something because because. Um, Another child is going to kind of come cut up. I think we need to spend more money on exposure because if you can see something and visualize it, I mean, that's, that's biblical, that's uh, academic, that's education, then you can begin to possibly see yourself in it even when you're not in it. And the other thing I think that, that I'm glad you asked that question that used to really bother me as an educator is the people who did not graduate from the proficiency results. I was one of the mm -hmm. first um, graduates of high school that had that proficiency test on our backs. It took me three times to pass it, and I was an honor student. So I have okay. classmates who are still don't have high school diplomas as a result of a proficiency test, which has changed over the years. They've changed the requirements. And so I think that really looking back and saying, look at the quality of life that has changed for the families of those people who have no high school diploma. But we're good students, mm -hmm. but all because of a state test or a mandate that says you are not good enough because you don't remember how to use a ruler and you don't know what Johnny did when he had bricks to his home, which I don't care about, um, that you're not allowed to graduate. And what that did to families that uh, the people that graduated graduated 20, 30 years ago, we're seeing the outcome of that. And we're also seeing more of the factories placed in neighborhoods like my own, where I used to have a Kroger. Now there's a factory because they know that the trajectory of the people in the neighborhood have not graduated from um, high school. And like I said, as a student in poverty at the time, I don't know what I would have done without that Kroger mm -hmm. in my neighborhood. And so I think that the first thing is bringing hope back into the school beyond the data. The second thing is exposure. And then the third thing is uplifting the children um, in a way that they feel empowered to say, hey, mom, hey, dad, or even if not, they're not discouraged if mom and dad are not listening or looking. They still have hope for themselves. You know, the, uh, the, the whole uh, component of the educational system that we're talking about is strongly related to the work component in terms of quality of life. And uh, earlier in the, the conversation, you talked about fun. Mm -hmm. You know, fun has been identified as the number one indicator for productivity in, in the workplace. Now, it doesn't mean that you come to work every day and tell jokes. Right, right, <laughs> right. Because a lot of people don't want to do that and have right. fun. You know? And you, you got those kids. But, you know, sometimes even if you got some young people who want to do that, and mm -hmm. I had a bunch of them, and in fact, you know, I had skills in that, that set myself, okay? But the aspect of how do you work with the right people that help you make that transition in terms of, okay, I'm gonna tell these jokes today, but, okay, so maybe you're good at speaking, you're good at telling jokes, so why don't you be the announcer for this program I got at school today? Mm -hmm. Why don't you find a way to record the things that are happening with this group or that group and give everybody the results from that perspective? So there are ways that good educators take the time to find uh, find those skill sets to move those kids into those, those spaces. You know, we probably need to do a time, uh, um, uh, what, part two? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> this time has gone by oh my so, so, so quickly, you know. I knew that what it always does, uh, but we'll have to come back. Okay? Awesome. So we need to come back, especially since we're having my youth summit tomorrow. Yes. Uh, you're going to be, again, one of the leaders of one of my sessions. Uh, what's that session again? The, the it's on leadership. on leadership. The session's on leadership, and I'm talking okay. about leading from love and leading from where you are. Okay. So as you talk about that, so we'll make uh, time to come back so you can talk about how you stimulate and motivated another two or 300 kids in the, terms of moving into that space. I'm honored. I'm okay. so excited. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay, so again, another edition of In the Spotlight with Mayor Jeff Mims. Really, really do appreciate you. Thank, thank you. you. Glad come to be here. Come back again soon. Very soon. Bye-bye. Right. All right.
Thanks for listening to Birthplace of Next, a publication of the City of Dayton's Office of Communications and Public Affairs. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss the latest news about what's happening in Dayton. If you have questions or feedback for us, please email cityhall at daytonohio.gov.